stay rabbi Sold I to the merchant ships Minutes after they took I From the bottomless pit But my hand was made strong By the end of the Almighty We forward in this generation Triumphantly Won't you help to sing These songs of freedom Cause all I ever have Redemption songs Redemption songs Emancipate yourselves from mental slavery None but ourselves can free our minds Have no fear for atomic energy Cause none of them can stop the time How long shall they kill our prophets While we stand aside and look Some say it's just a part of it We've got to fulfill the book Won't you help to sing These songs of freedom Cause all I ever have Redemption songs Redemption songs Redemption songs Emancipate yourselves from mental slavery None but ourselves can free our mind Oh, have no fear for atomic energy Cause none of them cannot stop at the time How long shall they kill our prophets While we stand aside and look Yes, some say it's just a part of it We've got to fulfill the book Won't you help to sing These songs of freedom Is all I ever had Redemption songs All I ever had Redemption songs These songs of freedom Songs of freedom This is Ink Studs on CITR 11.9 FM in Vancouver. My guest today is uh, Dr. Bill Ayers. Um, we're here to yak about your new comic book based on an older book you did, I guess, was it 15 years ago? About 15 years ago, yep. Um, to teach the journey, this time I guess, in comics. It says the journey in comics. Um, I guess first off for me... 
What was the idea behind transferring this work um, from a text into a comic form? Well, you know, its origin is actually kind of um, sketchy and a little bit flippant because I did the book about 15 years ago and then I did a second edition and when the publisher approached me to do a third edition, I found myself falling asleep just at the thought of it. I just was not interested. And I said kind of flippantly to the publisher, well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll do it if you let me make it a comic book. And partly I was, obviously I was just kidding because this is a scholarly press. And partly I was um, thinking I love comics. I teach comics. I think they're great. Uh, I don't know really how to make one or what one what's involved in making one, but I, th- I, I, I like comics and I thought it would be kind of a cute thing to say. So I said that to them, and two months later they came back and said, okay, which kind of floored me, and I'm still kind of stunned by it. Um, but we, but but then I was kind of set on a course of trying to find an artist and think through what this would mean, and I was very fortunate to find Ryan Alexander Tanner, who became not just an illustrator, but the co-author of this new book, and he was a 25-year-old cartoonist living in Portland. Um, I got to him because he was an English student of my brother's at Berkeley High School many years ago, and I had met him briefly then, and then he was uh, my niece's roommate when he went to art school in Portland. So I knew him kind of peripherally, but I checked around and talked to him a little bit over email, and then I had my own sons who were in their 30s and have a much closer kind of sense of the culture than I do. I asked them to check him out, and my oldest son, who's a playwright, came back to me and said, gosh, his work is really original and really terrific, and you guys could really potentially have something great. And so Ryan came to Chicago. We wrote a book proposal for the press, for Teachers College Press. They accepted it, and he moved from Portland to Chicago and lived with me for six months um, on the third floor of our house, and we collaborated every day. And I guess one other thing to say is that it it took, uh, I think it took Ryan about two months to educate me enough so that I could really participate in this. I had originally thought thought that he would um, illustrate the words I'd already written. And of course, you know, and most of your listeners know, that comic book art is nothing like that. And I had to come to understand that we were doing a brand new book, that it had a lot of the same ideas, and some of those ideas are complex and nuanced and layered, but that they weren't going to be just illustrated. It was going to be uh, its own new form. And so we did a lot of studying together. We read Paul Auster's novel, City of Glass, and then the comic book um, version of that. And slowly, 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 it dawned on me that it really is a medium, and that Mm -hmm. it would be like you don't translate a book to a film by doing one-to-one correspondence, and nor do you do that with a comic book. And we had to rethink everything. We had to get a plot, characters, a narrative arc, um, and we had to work these ideas into a much more complicated story. So it was a great learning experience for me, and I loved every minute of it. Have you done collaborative work in the past in this kind of context? Not in this context. I've written books with other folks. The last book I published was co-written with my partner of 40 years and um, you know collaboration is always difficult because um, you know you have competing kind of ideas and and aesthetics and 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 um, interpretations going on and experiences but you know I, I must say that with Ryan it was one of the 
easiest things in the world. And part of the reason for that was that I recognized pretty early on that he was the driver in the in the equation. That he was the uh, he brought most of the skill and much of the interpretation with him. And that the question was, how did we um, work out a, 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 a way of talking, a grammar, and so on, mm -hmm. that was fitted to the topic at hand, which is kind of a, uh, a guidebook on how to become a teacher told in the story of this character's first year of teaching. How do you do that? And I must say, Ryan brought um, not only dedication, but inventiveness and skill to it that still takes my breath away. It seems like... Um I haven't seen the book itself, but I'm presuming that you really have to boil down a lot of the ideas. Well, that's that's the in the nature of comic book mm -hmm. art, you know. It's like poetry or theater. Um, you know, one of the one of the funny things that kind of characterized our collaboration was that he would ask me to. We would be working out a design, and he'd have two panels, and he'd say, "We've got to get these two panels. Have to kind of get these." these thoughts in them so would you leave me some text and then he'd go to bed he went to bed at six in the morning and <laughs> i got up at four in the morning so we had a little overlap but um you know so he would say leave me some words so i would leave him like four typed pages which is of course not very helpful um, <laughs> or 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 you know one chapter that i absolutely love is called creating an environment for learning and the last um the, that chapter ends with a kind of a a, a, a shout out to what a great classroom could look like and I wrote probably five or six pages and I did a diagram a kind of bird's eye view type map of that classroom and Ryan rendered it in one absolutely brilliant frame and I kept weeping about the five pages of text that had you know made it under the cutting room floor but that happened again and again good comic book art is partly the art of concision like good poetry like good theater. Um, Ryan read a lot of theater in this period because um, theater gives you lots of examples of the compression of dialogue and how mm -hmm. dialogue can can work when it's, you know, brief and um, quick and emotional. In many ways, what I love about this book is it's an emotional, hit-you-between-the-eyes kind of rendition of, um, of some pretty complicated ideas. I guess coming right to the, the matter hand is the... You, is the concept of the book you kind of lightly say it's about how to teach um, but that's kind of a really simple way of putting it I kind of feel like it's more like an analysis of teaching and kind of understanding what teaching means too yeah I mean when I say it's a it's a guidebook what I really mean is it's a guidebook in the sense you know, the book has been compared by some people to Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics, which is certainly a book that we read and studied, although we had a lot of other uh, things that we studied. Mm -hmm. But I think anything that comes out in comic form that's a guidebook should reference Scott McCloud because his book was such a breakthrough, such a brilliant, um, you know, take on, on comic book art. But it's not really, it's not really a how-to book at all. Uh, in fact, when we first talked to the press about this, they conceived it as a short comic, a stapled comic. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. And they, they conceived it as kind of a gateway drug to the real book. And Ryan, from the beginning, was very clear with the publisher that he wasn't interested in doing an introduction like that. He was interested in taking this medium 
and rendering the complex and difficult ideas in the original text and updated however I wanted to update them. But he wanted to render them in comic book form, so he wanted the medium to carry the complexity of the thing. So what we ended up with is a story, and the story is begins with the first day of teaching of this 21-year-old kid named Bill. It's his first minute in the first classroom, and a five-year-old kid says to him, Bill, why does the ball bounce? And Bill looks like a deer caught in headlights. You know, he doesn't know the answer. And by the end of that first morning, he knows nothing. He doesn't know why his skin is pink. He doesn't know why the sky is blue. And that sets him on a journey to try to figure out what teaching is if it's not the conveyance of wisdom from on high. And it's that story that, that becomes the narrative of this book. It's this kid learning to teach. And by the end, the book ends on graduation day. Um, so it's the end of that first year of learning. So it's not literally a guidebook or a how-to book or teaching for beginners. Um, it's much more than that. But mm -hmm. at the same time, it is a book that I think will be read by folks who are thinking of teaching or renewing their interest in teaching or studying teaching or becoming a teacher. It, it also feels like a response to... Uh faulty uh, standards in teaching? I'm to, sorry, to what? To, to faulty standards in teaching? Well, I think that it enters the debate um, about where we are in the world of education at a kind of a crucial and urgent moment, and it certainly is on one side of that debate, um, because what I try to show you, and I think what people know intuitively, is that when you reduce teaching to a simple slogan like, you know, deliver the goods, get the test scores up, um, and so on. You're missing everything means. about teaching that's important, excellent, and complicated. And so what this book does is come down very, very heavily on the side of teaching as intellectual and ethical work, not as teaching as kind of a clerking or a, or a factory job. It's not like that at all.
interesting for myself reading it um i'm i'm in canada and seeing the kind of i don't feel uh education is uh kind of institutionalized as the kind of predominant system in the states are and it's it's really fascinating just seeing you know i didn't grow up with no no child left behind and kind of seeing what that really means well, you know, the thing about teaching and about education is it is in all societies, it certainly is in our society, um, contested space. Mm-hmm. And the reason schooling and teaching and education is contested space is because schools are where we work out either explicitly or implicitly the answers to a lot of very complicated questions like what does it mean to be human? Who is the public in public education? What is the future going to look like? Um, what do we hope for our children and our grandchildren? Because, you know, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, because these are the questions that are under every educational experience. Um, it's bound to be, you know, a place of kind of friction and um, argument. And you're right, of course, to highlight the No Child Left Behind and Race to the Top and kind of mindless um, linking of uh, good education to a kind of a punitive um, high-stakes testing regime. You're right to point to that, but it would be a mistake to think that that's uh, won the day. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's won the day at all. I think that it's discredited, and I think that smart people, good people are fighting this fight every day. And the interesting thing is the millions of teachers, including my middle son, Malik, who teaches in Oakland, California, show up every day, do the job, um, achieve all kinds of miracles in the classroom, none of which will show up on their ratings or on the standardized tests, um, and yet they they go forward. They keep working, and they are a force for a humanized um, and and progressive view of, of teaching and education. And they're not going away, and they haven't been defeated definitively in any sense at all. What was your uh, original interest in in becoming a teacher? I mean, you're you kind of teach in all sorts of contexts. I've taught in a lot of contexts. I, I became a teacher when I was 20 years old. 
I grew up um, in tremendous privilege in the suburbs of Chicago, um, and I went off to Michigan, and I got involved in the freedom movement, the black mm -hmm. freedom movement, and the anti-war movement. And I was arrested in 1965 in a direct action, nonviolent sit-in at the draft board. I did 10 days in jail, and in jail I met these extraordinary teachers, and they told me about this school they were founding, and I marched out of jail and into my first classroom. And I know that that's not everyone's experience. <laughs> I know it's a unique experience. But for me, from that day until this, teaching has been linked to the hope for a better world, to the idea that that justice can be in part found in the classroom and in the in the aspirations of teachers and parents and kids and community working together. So I've never lost that kind of link, but the little school I worked in was part of the civil rights movement. Um, all the important lessons that I learned about teaching, which I am still trying to apply 45 years later, I kind of learned right there. Um, I learned that uh, kids are various, that there's no such thing as the ideal five-year-old or the ideal seven-year-old, that the range of what it means to be normal is huge. I learned that asking questions is a smarter way to teach than giving answers. I learned that um, unlocking the wisdom in the room rather than presuming that the wisdom is all sitting at the front of the podium is a huge um, boon to being an excellent teacher. I learned that the environment matters a lot, that, um, you know, that, that if, you, if you think that you're teaching, uh, you know, reading instruction in an illiterate environment, you're fighting yourself. And if you create a literate environment, you actually go much further, not only in reading instruction, but in the love of reading and, and the love of speaking and writing and so on. So these are things I learned when I was 20, 21, 22 years old, and they're things that I still believe in. In fact, another thing I learned is that even to this day, when I have a graduate seminar, I teach writing to graduate school students, I um, try to always show up with a snack because I learned when I was 20 years old that if you feed the kids, all else can go to hell, but at least they ate, and so I'm still that kind of teacher. I had a, a history class. I'm a history major at university, and uh, last summer I had a class. It was actually one of my favorite while well, well, I've been in school, and it was a seminar course on uh, media and Latin America history uh, course. And the teacher actually brought in snacks every class because it was a three-hour evening. That's my kind of teacher, and the interesting thing is the teachers you remember, the teachers I remember, I think the teachers your listeners remember, are the teachers who, number one, cared about us as people, and one indication of that is feeding you. And number two, they were people who cared enough to try to teach. They didn't come in with nothing. They came mm -hmm. in with something. And uh, they really wanted to share the world with you. And that's been my experience all, all along. So I try to apply those lessons even now as I teach graduate school. And it's quite interesting this my, just watching the school I'm at. It's a very conservative school for the most part. Um, but there's these occasional teachers that will pop up. And I have one teacher that's a classics professor who uh, kind of interesting viewpoint where he brings his own kind of his, his First Nations culture into analyzing uh, Roman and Greek empires. Nice. And uh, but a big part of the course is also he goes and takes, you know, a textbook, you know, as part of the course you have your textbook on, you know, ancient Roman history, Greek history, and you make sure to grab one from an authoritative source. Nice, nice. And, and then we spend the whole... It's we actually have a page like that. We have a page like that in our book where a teacher.
teacher is looking for alternative sources on teaching history. But this uh, this this class you're describing sounds like it warrants a comic book. Mm-hmm. Or or another thing is every great teacher deserves a great comic book. So you might get this comic book for that professor. Well, he's a uh, he's he's an interesting one. He had a, yeah, he has a lot of challenges and uh, very fascinating guy. Yeah. It's uh, nice to see people jump out of the box. Um, one of the fascinating things about teachers is it's kind of uh, a, a unique profession to go in in that your rewards are not financial, but I don't want to say spiritual, but it's the best term I'm coming to right now. Well, you know, I ask students all the time. I ask my students, and I speak at colleges all the time, and I ask students, are any of you going into teaching because you think you'll get rich? And everybody laughs derisively. And I say, good, I don't have to start at the very beginning. Um, <laughs> do you think you're going to get wide community respect and be carried around town uh, in a golden throne? No, nobody thinks that. In fact, they begin to tell me, lots and lots of people have told me, don't teach. Uh, my parents, my brother, my sister, my partner, my best friend has said, don't teach, you're too smart. And so then I say to them, well, what the hell is, what are you doing? Aren't you... You seem bright enough. Why are you going to be a teacher? All the disrespect, all the lack of reward, what's with you? And the astonishing thing is that even today, with teachers under sustained and serious attack by the central government, by the state governments, by the local media, by the national media, kids still want to teach. And they still want to teach because they think that in teaching, they'll find a way to help the world, they'll find a way to help kids, They'll find a way to share something they love, whether it's quadratic equations or chess or comics, um, with the young. And I think that that speaks volumes to what it is that is the reward of teaching. And I would agree with you. Spiritual's a good word. Moral, ethical, intellectual pleasure. All of these things are there in teaching. Um, it's a bottomless. It's a bottomless journey. And the wonderful thing is, I've been at it for you know, many, many years, 45 years at least. Um, and I still don't feel like I've reached bottom. I still feel like every year is filled with surprises. And uh, that makes me happy. That makes me keep at it. One of the really fascinating things is um, how, and we, we touched this a little bit, is that one way you got the archaic role of classrooms. And it's I find it interesting, you know, seeing there's work like what you're writing. It's also all sorts of different alternative schools that provide uh, different kinds of uh, ways of intellectual engagement for, for young people. Yeah. Um, and I work, professionally I work in the social service sector in Vancouver's downtown east side, and constantly there's new approaches of how we engage with clients, how we acknowledge clients, and you know new value structures built in, and it's interesting to see there is parts of education that kind of acknowledge this change in values, change in needs, change in um, what the structure is made of. But in a lot of ways, it feels stunted, too. Like it's not a, a larger discourse. Does that feel that way, or is there a larger discourse? Say, say another word about it. A larger discourse above uh, that's going on that's kind of shaping teaching? Is yeah. That you know, I think there are a lot of larger discourses, yeah, and I think that I think we're living in a moment when, um, you know, education, if you want to take the large metaphor for education in the U.S., and I think 
in large parts of the capitalist world, I think that, you know, education is being talked about and reduced to a product. Mm -hmm. That is, it's something you buy and sell at the market. It's not something, it's not a human right or a journey. It's a product. And, and if you think of it as product, that opens up all kinds of space for thinking that a superintendent who fires teachers and downsizes and privatizes and, you know, that those things make sense. So that's a meta-narrative or a big metaphor that controls teaching. But what I was taking from what you were saying earlier is that one of the things I find fascinating in teaching is that there are a million approaches, that there are thousands of ways one can accomplish the things that need to be accomplished in, in teaching and schooling. Um, and that one size never fits all. It just never does in social service work or in teaching um, or in if you're a midwife in birthing, you know, mm -hmm. I often think of midwifery, I, one of my other favorite professions. Um, you know, and like teaching, midwifery is something that um, you go to school, you go to nursing school, and then you go to midwifery advanced study, and you can learn how to be a midwife. But until you catch that first baby, it's all theory. Yeah. And then it becomes something real. And the good midwife, somebody who's caught 300 babies or, or you know, is a... Is a renowned in the community as a wonderful midwife is somebody who doesn't have one technique but has a thousand things in her bag of tricks that she can pull out given the you know the sui generis the single birth that's before her and i really learned this in some ways from a midwife when our first child was born she said you know we were talking to her about about how to get ready for this thing and so on and she said my job really is to listen to you my job really is to see what you're going through and to help you respond because the, you're the one birthing the baby. I'm the guide. I'm the person who has some skills that can be applied to that, but each one is different. There are no two births that mm -hmm. are identical. You can't actually have a robot you know, giving birth. It doesn't work that way. So I think that's true of teaching. I think it's true of social service. I think it's true of any, um, any profession that's, that's relational as opposed to kind of linear and connecting the dots kind of thing. One of the things you touch on in this, and something I've seen in my own profession, is kind of an increasing importance of understanding... I, the, say it again, I'm sorry, increasing... The... the... Uh, the increasing uh, understanding of um, the so how someone's social world affects them, like you touch on the one student or a couple different sorts of students. One, you know, in a average classroom would be identified as hyperactive and kind of not identified. Why, why is this person like this? What's going on with them? Um, or what someone's home is like? What kind yeah, of support yeah. structures they have? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you can make the you can certainly make the error of being too categorical. You know, you can say uh, Jimmy is like that because he's African American, or you can kind of say. Well, Celia feels that because she's a girl. So you can kind of drift into stereotyping. But what we're trying to do in that little section is point out that no child comes to school um, as a singular, isolated being. Every child brings into the classroom a family, a community, a language group, a racial history, uh, a social class, um, an economic condition, a cultural surround, and that all of these things come marching into your classroom, often unannounced and unacknowledged. But the smart teacher is somebody who says, 
there's much more here for me to understand and know than meets the eye. And the more I know, the better I'm going to be as a teacher. And so seeing the student as a complex, multi-dimensional uh, person with a heart, a mind, a soul, a spirit, um, experiences, hopes, aspirations, dreams, a body, this is part of it. But part of it is acknowledging that every kid also brings a family, a family history, uh, a family tradition, uh, a sense of identity that's located in that family, um, and on and on. And what that does, if you take it seriously, is it makes your classroom a much more complicated, a much more um, uh, dazzling kind of display of possibilities as well as, you know, challenges. So that's the way I think of that. I think that we make a mistake when we pretend that the classroom is an isolated space. It's a porous place, and it's a place that, you know, um, experiences and so on flow pretty easily in and out. One thing I'm curious about is kind of the establishment of the classroom as an area, I guess, of hope. Right. Um, tell me about the importance of hope with students. Well, you know, the, the way I think of it often is that I'm sometimes accused of being a an optimist, which I'm definitely not. Um, I'm sometimes um, thought of as somebody who's overly positive. But I reject optimism because I think that optimists uh, think that they're prescient and that they know what's going to happen. And I have no idea what's going to happen. Uh, so I'm not a pessimist either. But rather, I think that I'm a hopeful person because, precisely because I don't know what's going to happen next. And I think you have to, if you can in, engage kids and, and all your students, but start with little kids, if you can engage them in a sense of confidence that they're participation in the world is something that the world wants and needs, if you can instill in them the kind of disposition of mind to be hopeful, um, it gives people power in the world to um, attack problems, to overcome obstacles, to go at life with a certain amount of energy that they wouldn't have if they thought everything was predetermined. And everything isn't predetermined. A lot depends on what we do or don't do, how we see the world, how we construct our own identities within that world. So hope is an important part of my teaching. In fact, I think in a democracy, uh, at least theoretically, um, that, that qualities that we need are not qualities like obedience and conformity, which we have way too much of and are only worthy of an authoritarian society. I think the qualities that we want our kids to get, whatever else we're teaching, are qualities like imagination, courage, initiative, hopefulness, confidence, um, entrepreneurship. I mean, these are the kind, of, uh, the kind of dispositions of mind that allow you to create a life and construct a, an identity. Without them, you're simply, you know, uh, you know a kind of a, a leaf blowing in the wind, and, and that's not an appropriate way for a human being to live. So a lot of what I do as a teacher is I... I spend time talking about the world as such, as we just did, you know. The world as such has no child left behind in it. But the world that could be and should be is standing right next to that world, that so-called reality, and we need to be able to see those things if we hope to be free people at all. I still got you there? Say again? Oh, sorry, I heard a click sound, so I thought it dropped off. 
Um, it's it's really interesting. Um, I'm really fascinated with the whole idea of what what you can do, not what you can't do. Right. I guess, and I guess it's the balance between hope inspiring and spirit crushing. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. To see what uh, what the students can do. Um, actually, I think I've got most of my questions here. That's pretty much it. That, that I'm, I'm feeling. I've got a lot of what I was. You've got a for. lot. I've got a lot there. We don't need no education. We don't need no thoughts control.
stick a stone It's the end of the road It's a little alone It's a sliver of glass It's a life, it's the sun It is night, it is death It's a trap, it's a gun Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. This is a kind of a part two to another interview, or maybe it'll be part one, and I'll put the other interview after. Uh, interviewed the writer of To Teach Bill Ayers, um, and now I'm talking to the artist, Ryan Alexander Tanner. Uh, but you have other comics too. That's not your only work. Mm-hmm. Television. I was reading uh, The Complete PDX Exposed on my bus ride oh. out to the station today. And I saw my friend Robin Bougie in there, and that was very delightful, him talking about consensual incest relationships. Oh, Bougie. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I interviewed him at Stumptown, and then the next year I gave him that original drawing, and he seemed like 
weirded out or something. I think he didn't remember what it was for, and he thought I would just was drawing him in my spare time or something. He seemed really <laughs> thought it, there was something weird going on, like I was obsessed with him. You know, just like oh yeah. He he does get odd fans. I will say that. Yeah, <laughs> I'd imagine. Yeah, he's the cinema sewer guy, right? So. Yeah. We'll leave that one alone for now. Um, <laughs> you've been doing comics for a while. Now you have a whole bunch of different mini comics, I'm presuming, other than the Phoenix uh, Exposed. Yeah, a handful. I mean, I've done... Uh, I've sort of taken a weird path with comics because my first sort of real printed stuff was in the newspaper, was in, like, local papers in Portland, Oregon. And so rather than sort of starting out doing a bunch of mini comics, I was creating content there, so not all of it's collected. And, uh, so, yeah, I don't know. It's sort of a different route. I sort of came in. I sort of feel like I came in through the side, I guess yeah. I would say. Well, did you, you went to, to some schooling for cartooning? No, I went to, I went to a fine arts college. Oh, and okay. uh, I sort of studied, uh, like, contemporary art theory and practice more than anything else. But um, for me, the medium was always comics. I've always wanted to work in comics, so it was sort of what I learned in school is how to sort of pick it apart and really look at every angle and try to get a real good understanding of how your work can be looked at by you know different audiences and what does it mean to draw it this way as opposed to this way and things like that. But there was no uh, when I was there, there was really no sort of accommodation for comics. Like uh, a lot of my critiques were. Um, you know, so-and-so did a painting and so-and-so made a video. And so when we look at my work, a lot of times we just sort of talk about comics as a broad medium and mostly just about how no one Got knew it. how to talk about it. Yeah, yeah which was <laughs> really, really great. Okay, because someone had mentioned maybe that you had done some studying under Bernetti, but I guess not. No, I met him. Um, I definitely didn't study under him, but when I was in Chicago, when Bill and I were writing the book together, we... Uh, went to dinner parties and stuff you know he's real socially active and i met a guy who worked with ivan brunetti at um do you know what school he works at it's in chicago i can't remember right now i should know it but i don't can't remember it's a good one but he um <laughs> ivan brunetti was generous enough to agree to let me come meet with him and so i just went and i probably spent you know an hour in his office and that was when we were just getting ready to send off our draft of our scripts into editing so I was just sort of showing them what we were doing and what we were trying to do and how it was working out and that was really you know kind and generous of him to give me that time and for me it was kind of like oh shit you know this is talking <laughs> to Ivan Brunetti so also he's he one of those people you know that huh I hope he doesn't cut my head off yeah totally I know I hope he doesn't rape my neck stump he's one of those people yeah that you have this sort of uh, you know, a sense through their work of what they might be like, but he was very—he was a good guy. He was very charming in person. I liked him a lot. He's very—he's very generous and he's very, very kind man. It's—he uh, was very sweet, I guess yeah. I would say, which is what what surprised me. It's yeah. Don't don't judge a creator by his comic. By his rape joke. By his rape jokes. Yes, Ivan Bernetti. God bless him. Make more comics, Ivan. So to teach. Um, how daunting was that to take it on as a project when you'd been doing predominantly mini-comics? So for me, it was just sort of uh, it was an opportunity to sort of step up from what I'd been doing. You know, it was just a larger scale version, but I'd really been 
working in taking people's stories and their ideas or things they wanted to present and uh, doing it in comics. That's really what I'm about is using this medium to convey information or specific narratives. So, I mean, it was huge. It was the size of it was really big, but we worked it out that I'd be able to do it full time. You know, that was pretty much my only job while I was making that book. So I really got to, you know, spend 12 hours a day on it. So that was sort of my main concern was just having the time. But working with Bill was tricky because he's not a comics writer. Like he's never written comics before. So the sort of, that's a lot of what I did in my writing work on that book was I, uh, you know, I created these sequences and it was almost like a Stanley Jack Kirby thing where we would work out what the sort of general narrative arc of the chapter would be. And then I would lay a lot of stuff out. Cause when you're working with people who don't think visually, you can't just sort of tell them, you can't describe to them what you're going to do and then assume that they're seeing it. You have to draw something out for them, you know? So I would sort of go, okay, we need to do this in two pages. And I want to do this kind of thing. You know, I want to do a, um, a thing where he's, he's, you were talking about stepping off the cliff. So I want to show that, or I want to, um, I want to have this exchange between Bill and this kid be two pages long, and I want to see the kid's self-portrait and things like that, and then he would sort of see those, and we would sort of fill in the dialogue together, and, uh, you know, he would write parts, and I would write parts, and it would go back and forth a lot. So, um, I don't know, it's this amazing collaboration, you know, I don't think I'll have another experience like that anytime soon. It it was also uh, an odd time when you guys were doing it as far as this like sudden attention on Bill right for some uh, flippant comments by uh, a certain Alaskan governor yeah there may, there may have been one or two yeah um <laughs> how is that your experience with him then um of like kind of watching this unfold or simmer or what have you sure well, I mean, I didn't sign up for that. I'll tell you that much. And I didn't know <laughs> I didn't know that was going to happen. So, we first started writing. We had to pitch one chapter before we could uh, get the deal. Yeah. And so I and we so we were trying to write it through email, and it was really becoming clear that that just kind of wasn't going to work. You know. Yeah. Just with the amount of stuff you have to kind of go back and forth on, because I'm really into. Uh, kind of constant feedback and getting both of our priorities on the page and all that, you know? And so uh, we agreed we had to get together. So we we came out to Chicago for a weekend, and um, that was when this stuff was first starting to happen. We're first starting to really hear about Obama, and then Bill had like a, what was it? It was like the National Enquirer, and there was some story about, uh, you know, Obama had a gay lover, and he knew someone who was, uh, murdered mysteriously, and also he knew Bill Ayers, so it was like these little sort of tabloid stories starting to come up, you know? Yeah. And uh, so that was sort of the start of it, and I wasn't really paying attention, and then I'd say it was probably five or six months before I actually went out there and we did the whole roommate thing and started really full-time working on the book, so um, I mean, I definitely was interested in this whole, uh, and you know, Hillary... Hillary had the debate with Obama, and that was when it really first started happening, the whole, uh, you know, Bill Ayers, and that means this about you thing. Yeah. And you so... Know, the guy I, that you're doing this book about teaching with. Right. <laughs> right. And so, um, and I had met Bill before. I met him in, two, I, re, I met him in yeah, 2001, right after 9-11. He was, 
doing his book tour for Fugitive Days, and that was the first time I'd met him in person. And I think I met him once after that. But uh, I guess uh, this is going on forever, but the long story short, I guess, is that uh, for me, for a long time, I wasn't really sure how big of a thing it was because it's like we're living in the house and, you know, it's sort of like uh, we're picking up on everything that they're saying about Bill because we're sort of personally invested in this thing. And I guess it was, uh, you know, when Sarah Palin kind of came out with her whole thing that it started to go, oh, shit, this is really like a thing. Or we're watching debate, you know, we're watching... uh, you know, whatever that old man's name was, debating Obama, and uh, it's, it's coming up then, and we're going, oh, this is really a thing. You know, and we had an incident where we were going to the grocery store, we got rolled up on by uh, Fox News, which was really scary. It felt like it for me, and that was sort of when I was kind of taking it more seriously. And it was just a really creepy experience, bottom line, is it was creepy and invasive, and it was... Uh, a big distraction and kind of a waste of time. We're trying to write this comic book about uh, progressive education and there's like reporters coming to the door. And, but also uh, for me, it was sort of profound in that it was uh, for me, it was this experience of like someone comes along and gives you your dream job and gives you, you know, all this sort of kindness and uh, this real sort of patient approach to working together and learning from each other. And this real sort of generous, very genuine working relationship and at the same time he's all over the news like as this monster yeah. <laughs> so that was just the contrast between those things for me and you know I mean I've always been skeptical of media but that was um, for me just personally kind of putting it on another level of how much we have to filter these things that we read and uh, you know it's all just a narrative you know any media is trying to create this concise narrative to sort of get these ideas across to you and there's a lot of things that get overlooked or skewed on the way with to teach um how did you like it's kind of hard to do a book like this without stepping out from the shadow or having the shadows of understanding comics under your and i'm wondering how that affected your work as far as like informing how to do this or how you wanted to kind of not do it mm-hmm yeah, obviously, understanding comics comes up a lot because it's the same kind of book, you know. Yeah. I mean, if you were gonna call this a genre within comics, I would say that comical whatever you want. Yeah, guidebooks or yeah. So, um, and that's something that Bill read and Bill coming into comics from outside that was you know a very useful thing. And I think things like in the the design of the Bill character, it was helpful and uh, sort of in in having the sort of abstract. Uh, Space, this sort of lecture happening on the page. It was a really good guide for that. But I've always said, and this is very true, that as much as we used Understanding Comics, we also used uh, Paul Karazic and David Mazzucchelli's adaptation of uh, Paul Oster's City of Glass, mm-hmm. which to me is just one of the very best comic books, and it's a really great show of translating, of taking one medium and moving it into another, and of taking these sort of large abstract ideas and uh, using sort of visual icons and a sort of narrative rhythm to convey those sort of larger ideas that are harder to uh, turn into something tangible. So I, I would sort of cite both those books equally, actually, as influences on what we made. I'm, I'm happy to hear the um, the reference uh, to City of Glass, because it is, it is a language they're almost creating with that work mm-hmm. between Paul and, and David. Um, and 
that that's why I was curious about with uh, with understanding comics because it is kind of people fall back onto it and kind of look at that as like this textbook example or this you know this canon of how to do it and comics ain't that simple. Yeah, I mean it is a good example, and people sometimes think I'm going to get mad when they mention understanding comics, but I think you'd really have to sort of like categorically deny that book to not be influenced when you're creating something like this. But um, at the same time, you know, I've been reading comics forever. You know, I'm really, you know, obsessed with comics, and I have been <laughs> forever. So I'm not going to draw just from one source, or I'm not going to emulate one book when I'm seeing all these. You know, I have this sort of lifetime of influence sort of speaking to me when I'm trying to create this thing. But, I mean, that's the easiest sort of thing to look at. Or, you know, you get impatient, too. It's like people ask you these questions and you want to go over and over again, give them these long explanations. But after a long time, you just go, oh, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's, it's just like I understand comics. Or, like, <laughs> like we do shows, you know, and I was getting really defensive about it. It's not that Bill's the writer and I'm the illustrator. It's that we sort of did this thing collectively. But then you go to, like, MoCA and you... You tell that to ten people, and then you just start going, "Yeah, I drew it." Yeah, <laughs> just uh, you know, save your breath. Yeah, it's it is. Uh, you you pick your fights. Yeah, you know, and what's important? I guess to me it was important just because I'm trying to get uh, more work. You know, yeah. <laughs> so I just want people to know that I wrote some of this. Or I, you know, I want people to understand what I brought to it, but I'm trying not to be petty about it. It gets pretty annoying to <laughs> <laughs> keep telling people that over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, oh, oh. 
Well, let's talk about the subject matter itself. Um, sure. What interest did you have in the progressive teaching? Um, I'm interested. I mean, I, you know, I've been doing comics about a variety of subjects and working with people for a while. Like I did roller derby and I did one with Intel about how, uh, what is it, band gets converted into microcircuitry and things like that. And I always like to learn about, uh, these things while I'm sort of recreating them. That's to me a big part of the incentive of going through this process. But I've been, uh, working in classrooms for a few years and mostly doing, uh, after school programs of uh, doing uh, comics in the classroom with kids and I've done a little bit of uh, there's a lot of interest now in teachers wanting to use comics in the classroom and not uh, being familiar with comics and so I've done some sort of consulting work of going in and doing uh, presentations to the teachers and then doing presentations to the kids and sort of working with them about how to do this stuff so um, the sort of marriage of comics and education has been a big interest of mine for a while and so this was very natural to me to sort of uh make a book you know about this book is not really about comics at all it's very much just about education but Mm -hmm. sort of putting those things together to me was something that made a lot of sense and was really interesting well there's a lot of yeah uh i've just been you know and i keep trying to get it together to go back to school and get my master's so I can uh, teach. You know, it's something I'm working towards, and I'm actually uh, doing a summer arts thing here in Brooklyn. Well, I'm in Brooklyn, but it's in Manhattan. But starting, I think, next week, I'm going to be a a sixth-grade summer program uh, art teacher, and I think we're going to be focusing on comics. Nice. Yeah, because to me, I don't know, as an educator, I really try to give kids what I wish I had had, I guess, sort of my goal is feeling like I didn't get necessarily what I was wanting as a student, and so I'm sort of trying to provide things for students that I felt like I didn't have, which, you know, it's not to say that those kids are going to be just like me, but if there is, you know, one kid who's really, uh, you know, he's academically inclined, but he really thinks with comics, then this could maybe be a good chance for she or him to sort of have someone be receptive to that and help maybe point things in the right direction or some direction. And within the book itself, it touches on some a bunch of your own experiences, learning, and what's worked for you with teachers and stuff. So it's... Yeah, a little bit. Um, you know, they really sort of pressured me to put myself in the book. That was uh, something I fought against for a little while. But because um, it all came out of this joke in the first chapter, there's that thing where Bill goes, uh, you know, there's no job where you work more and are paid less and sort of given less you know whatever uh accolades and i just wrote them in an email as a joke i said except for cartoonists and then said you have to put that in the book and then you know you have to put yourself in the corner saying that and i was like i don't want to do that and then we did that in our pitch chapter and then they were kind of going yeah we should you know have you sort of chiming in sometimes and i kind of fought it but we we got peer reviewed before they uh set up a contract with us and one thing they said that was really interesting to me was this idea of having two authors and having a sort of uh, conversation happening on the page between those two authors and that to me was interesting enough to make a little drawing of myself but like if you look at you know PDX Exposed and things like that you can see that all my sort of first hand experience comics I'm very careful about never drawing myself and never Mm -hmm. being 
present in the narrative other than in ways I have to be, but that was sort of, there was no real way to do that outside of that. We're kind of seeing it through your eyes. Yeah, that's what I was always trying to do was really create a, a true first-person account of uh, this is an experience I had, so I'm sort of this filter between the um, subject and the reader, and it's acknowledging that as it being through my lens or whatever, but I'm trying to remove myself as much as possible. Why don't you tell me about your experience with Kato Kalen? <laughs> well, I was working as a security guard, and I was doing... I was doing PDX Exposed for the newspaper, so it was this weekly one-panel, uh, just sort of slice of life of things that happened to me in Portland or places I went or people I met and things. And they sort of got into this idea of going like, oh, we have these sort of um, lower echelon celebrities, and let's give them to the, the PDX Exposed guy, you know. So uh, they said, yeah, we want to interview Kato Kalin. And I was, I remember that day I was working at my security guard job, and I had to, uh, he kept calling me and asking me to come to his hotel, and I had to go, no, you know, you have to come meet me at my job. <laughs> to go to a bar down the street, and we'll talk there. And uh, But he was real nice. He was a good guy, man. And, you know, I think they really wanted me to uh, bait him and try to kind of piss him off and get, like, a out of context, you know, Kato Kalin being angry type of thing. But... Wow. He was good, and he was, you know, as genuine as someone like that is uh, able to be with someone like me, I think, you know. So I had a good time. He paid for my burger, and, uh, and you know, obviously the irony there, too, is Cato's famous for being a, a house guest during a big scandal, mm-hmm. which, you know, do what you will with that information. <laughs> <laughs> Took me a second. Yeah. <laughs> Now the collaboration process back to the to the book. Um, mm-hmm. From what I understand, it was basically you would draw all night, and then mm-hmm. you guys would have your little meetings in the morning. Mm-hmm. Now, are you still pretty much a predominantly late night cartoonist? Yeah, I have. Um, I guess I don't know if you call it a disorder or what, but I have kind of a chronic sleep aversion. Um, so yeah, I usually stay up late, and I get a lot of work done mostly between. Uh, maybe like 11 at night and 5 in the morning is a real primo work time for me just because there's nothing going on in the world and you're not getting phone calls or emails and you can't really go anywhere. So I'm a big fan of that. But it's also, um, yeah, so Bill and I had this sort of crossover. But we, we set up uh, meetings in the afternoon. He does a lot of stuff, so we had to really <laughs> create yeah. a schedule of when he was available because, you know, he'd be like, oh, I'm going to China for eight days on Wednesday. All of a sudden, he'd be like, oh, that's going to put a damper <laughs> on our work. I know, we were trying, but, to, trying to plan out when to do the interview, and it was like figuring out an hour he had in between something. And... Yeah, he probably did an interview, you know, before and after. <laughs> <laughs> he went and, uh, yeah, he goes to weird places. He goes to islands you've never heard of and, you know, He's, he's well-loved across the country, or uh, internationally. Yeah, not as much in the country, but maybe outside Well, you know, he does all right. He has his, you know, he was just at the, um, what was he at? He was at some educational uh, meeting thing, and, uh, you know, everyone loves him at those things. He's revered, and, but, you know, it's just uh, a matter of perspective, you know. He can't go to uh, Wisconsin all the time, but he has his places where he's very well-regarded. What's what do you want to work on in the future for your comics now that you've kind of put this away and it's done? 
right. Well, it's never done, but <laughs> every everything is hand lettered in that whole book, you know. So um, we're going into a second printing, and then I have to uh, do some new like things in the indicia and stuff like that because I insisted everything be hand lettered every time there's a correction or a update. <laughs> so that day will come back forever, but I insisted on doing it that way, so that's my price to pay. But um. That's a tricky question to answer right now because I'm working on something right now that I cannot talk about yet, but I will keep my fingers crossed for it. But I guess what I would say is that for the foreseeable future, I'm interested in working with writers, and uh, I'm not going to do my own book that's all me probably for a couple of books, I think. But I really am seeing, you know, like I really want to do television number two. I have some content for that done, but I feel like single-issue floppy comics are just dead. Unfortunately, that is the case. And you, what is your grant to publish that, correct? The first issue of television? Yeah, and that's, you know, that's one way of getting a 24-page floppy comic out on the shelves, and, you know, that was a great, I think it's, you know, uh, you get into comics and everyone's so sort of uh, jaded or, um, you know, it's always like, oh, good luck with that, you know, but I like that there's this one sort of like whimsical outlet for young cartoonists where you can just get everything paid for and sort of have this whole experience of doing it all yourself and getting it out and you know usually score some interviews out of it and all that but um then it's like then what you know if you want to make a series of single issue comics uh i always try to make um a really great friend of mine alex cahill who also got as eric in i don't know a couple years before i did probably 2005 has been putting out books and self-publishing and he always says uh you know make the comics that you want to see when you go to the comic store what's not there that you yeah. want to see and make those and i think that's such a great principle for approaching comics and i really want to see a 24 page you know self one person sort of anthology comic that comes out uh regularly but i just can't see any feasible way of making that exist unless you know if i won the lottery then i just keep putting them out you know keep losing (laughs) money on them and i'd be happy to do it if i had the money but the main reason there's no television number two is because i can't afford to put it out you know i'll i'll spend the time making it but in terms of getting it printed and put out and everything that's just not even a possibility for me and you know what though it's funny is that there are a lot of cartoonists in the same boat as you as far as really liking that format like Sam mm-hmm. Harkin would love to do Crickets as an ongoing right. uh, comic. Um, this one I just had in my head, but it's popped out. I know Brian Graham with his uh, King City have to do that as a comic. Um, well, that's doing pretty comic. well, right? Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah, it's a good comic. There's yeah. one I was just thinking of that that also is a great. Oh, uh, Michael DeForge's uh, Lose, which he's got mm-hmm. two issues out of so far, and it's just a regular comic. Well, and Jordan Crane has that one. Uptake, yeah. And I'm still waiting for Monster Parade number two from Ben Catmull. I don't know where that thing is. <laughs> Maybe it'll never That's the happen. thing, you know. Like, um, I read some uh, some Marvel DC comics, which is really frowned upon, I think. It's okay. The, uh, I'm fine with it. In the, uh, <laughs> I'm just saying in the, uh, whatever you want to call it, cool guy comics or indie comics or whatever. But, um you know, where are the alternative comics that come out right? Like, those are my soap operas, you know? Yeah. Like, if you had, like, when Bone was running, that was a nice, you know, regular release, ongoing serial of authority, but there's just, uh, there's nothing like that, really, in, um, 
you know, alternative comics right now, which I think is a real drag. Orkstein. We got Orkstein. Oh, yeah, Orkstein. <laughs> I mean, there's a couple. People like The Walking Dead and things like that, but um, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a hole that I'm seeing, but I don't know. I guess maybe there's all this talk about going digital, so maybe that'll um, create some outlets for people. I don't know. Or just more ways to supplement the cause. Right. So, hopefully, maybe, I don't know. Yeah. Comics, what can you do with them? I don't know. This whole going digital thing has been a big, it's been, you know, prominent in my mind because uh, on the one hand, I don't want comics to go digital. You know, I really want my paper comics in my hand, but, you know, I'm seeing the way the world is going and I'm just like, things like that, if I don't um, sort of make peace with them, I'm just going to be mad all the time. And, I, am, uh, I will say I'm happy about DC very vocally up front. Uh, mm-hmm. About their royalty payments, mm-hmm. and of the importance of how that is a part of their digital project. Yeah, which which is really good. I mean, Marvel they're like, oh, we do that too, and then you find out the details, and they don't really. All the fighting, yeah, yeah. So I guess I'm just saying, you know, I don't want to be, you know, I'm not even thirty years old yet, and I don't want to be, you know, in my late twenties sitting on my porch talking about these damn kids and their digital comics, you know, it's like <laughs> you gotta stick with the times I guess, and mm-hmm. you know well, I mean, there's it's, pros it, and cons to everything I, I, I can't really comment on the effectiveness of it yet because I mean, it's still it's still early, there's not a lot to really say other than supposition I guess So. well, and it's interesting too, like we've done these talks about the book and people talk about, you know online classes versus uh, you know in-person classes and ultimately I think that you know I don't think online classes are ever going to replace going to a class and you don't talking learn. to people. Hmm? you don't learn well I, I mean it depends you know my mom teaches online classes and she's a big advocate of those sorts of you know and if I had you know chronic uh, social anxiety or if I weighed 500 pounds or something I would maybe uh, see a lot of advantages to online classes but I think it's about having alternatives and various ways of acquiring this information or getting what you need out of something as opposed to this is going to replace this, it's this yeah. or this, you know. It's, uh, I think there's, there's a bunch of different reasons that uh, offline schooling will still continue. And it's Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, but I mean, there's also reasons why online schooling uh you know, can and should exist, and I don't think it's a battle between those two forms. I think it's what works for this and what works for this, or what do people need? Yeah. It's yeah. I've done a couple online courses. They're all right, but I prefer in person. Just my yeah. Own, I mean, my own thing. Say, uh, Levy, we're getting off topic, but I think uh, I think I've got my full amount of time here, Ryan. You want to talk about anything else? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> How about them Canucks? Oh, wait, you're in Brooklyn. That doesn't matter to you. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, well, thank you so much for uh, coming and joining me today. Sure, man. There is no other. All of you cock pullers are front. Wave your arms around like you're some octopus or something. To better you. But any chicken one, I'm getting up. Raw people, mad, ignorant, etc. Who the one who entertain and fume with? Who you low-breed humans can't be in the same room with?
and sweet, wrap it up, thief excrete. Every rapper rap maggot underneath Rick's feet. Evicted, why you trying to find shit to lick with? Even your kids tell you that you ain't shit to slick with. Though you pretend to be glory, I'm number one, that's the end of the story. The black clock ain't believe you numb, every single one fronting on your label is a bomb. Let me slow it down, that's enough of that. This I have to say to you, nothing of a rapper cat. From New York to Cali, none of fuck with the York Would you think Muhammad Ali used to talk shit? This sure hit a loner barrier And even if I got deported, I own America From New York to Cali, none of fuck with the York Would you think Muhammad Ali used to talk shit? This sure hit a loner barrier And even if I got deported, I own America so crazy A smash ripping up the place Give the Mac a taste I wipe my ass with a rapper face Cars come to a dead stop Rain find ways not to drop on my head top Tycoon rush at the riches Even my complexion is a must-have to bitches Even without common it's a budget I would have the most elegant apartment in the project right. Bitches aren't poor at the link or Know that Rick will put an end to all rapper income An old-timer, lock up all vagina fills France, nor Italy can fuck with my designer skills Salt in inferior, fault into where we are Trying to find fault in superior Let me slow it down, that's enough of that This I have to say to you, nothing of a rapper cat From New York to Cali, none of fuck with the York Would you think Muhammad Ali used to talk shit? This sure hit a loner barrier And even if I got deported, I own America From New York to Cali, none of fuck with the York Would you think Muhammad Ali used to talk shit? This sure hit a loner barrier And even if I got deported, I own America You like the taste hook stick no with While degenerate like yourself make our race look ignorant mm. And your girlfriend wanna kiss and deploy about in the groin Gets none of this tenderloin Feet planted on deep black firmament In the presence of who lead rap permanent Like a lion rap rips a chunk of kids who stunk mortals ain't shit to conquer Somebody said new pharaohs have appeared How and everything I wore ten years ago you wear now Occurred a murder, heard a word, I quick Rick Stomp a kid, hum to it, you complete bum to Rick Source awards, yeah Rick, every seminar Even make Saddam Hussein tell me where the webinar mm -hmm. Let me slow it down, that's enough of that This I have to say to you, nothing of a rapper cat From New York to Cali, none of fuck with the York Would you think Muhammad Ali used to talk shit? This sure hit a loner barrier And even if I got deported, I own America From New York to Cali, none of fuck with the York Would you think Muhammad Ali used to talk shit? This sure hit a loner barrier And even if I got deported, I own America From New York to Cali, none of fuck with the York Would you think Muhammad Ali used to talk shit? Bitch! Bitch! <laughs> Bimmy, remember Bimmy, y'all? Back in the day, uh-huh, we back, Rick. Queen, yeah, 10 years, man, we here. Same dances and all that, all that. Red and black. Now, y'all, you living life. That's right. Sorry, Wait. 